So this week we continue moving through the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus teaching the disciples how the church should look and what is required and should be evident to society around them. And we're talking about prayer today, which is really important and, and necessary, and also I think widely practiced yesterday after the results of the Kentucky Derby. I'm fairly certain that there was much prayer yesterday. So for the last couple of months, we've learned about these different antithesis statements from the Sermon on the Mount. And you might remember those as Jesus talked about how the rabbis taught and started out those, those uh, different antithesis statements with, you've heard it said, and then moved on to say and explain further, but I say to you. And we talked about how this was a matter of the heart and how we should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by practicing this greater righteousness, which is called the kingdom ethic. And so we're going to open up God's word together and work our way through today's passage in Matthew 6. And we'll read it together, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll work through it. So if you could open your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. This is Jesus talking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this particular passage that you've got for us today. We just pray that we would have open ears and eyes to see and hear what you want for us and for the church. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So I don't think it's coincidence that these, these particular teachings of Jesus are in this particular order with uh, what we covered last week with giving and then praying and fasting. And the, the focus here on the center of this, these three statements is on prayer. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence because Jesus is focusing on prayer because of its importance. And also, in this particular passage, Jesus at the end of this, you'll hear next week, that Jesus is going to give us the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And this is in, a, in the parallel passage in Luke 11. This is actually in response to Peter asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. So, in regards to prayer, I think it's often the most ne neglected discipline, and it seems less than sometimes. And you've probably had this experience where someone tells you something significant and weighty that's happening in their lives, and you can even ask them, have you prayed about this? And oftentimes, there's almost an eye roll there. Like, really? Well, I've got a real problem, and you're telling me to pray about it. Well, in fact, this is what this passage is all about, is what connects us to God, and what our first response to should be and not our last. Prayer is the practice that I seem to neglect the most of the spiritual disciplines. I pray, but I do not spend concentrated time in prayer with God. 
I just don't. Now, there are times when I have, when my heart has really moved me and the Spirit has prompted me to really dive deep in my relationship with God and spend time on my knees. But to be honest, that's the exception and not the rule, and usually that's in a crisis. So the saying goes, there are no atheists in the foxholes, and I think that's good reason for that. And I think we all recognize that in those moments of, of, of deep human need, that's almost our default. Even atheists reach out and beseech God for some kind of relief. So in our hearts, we know that there's a creator, and we know that he can be prayed to and he answers prayer. But we have a hard time doing it. It's often neglected, as I mentioned. But friends, we serve a big God. He's mighty to save. He's mighty to keep. And he desires prayer so that he can answer it. And we talk about our big God here every single week. It's interesting that we often hear about Bible reading plans and all the other kinds of plans, but you rarely hear about prayer lists or prayer journals or things to improve your prayer life. And we are remiss, my friends, in thinking that prayer is not the main course in treating it like it's a side dish. In fact, if you're only going to have one course, prayer is it. I'm going to challenge you today to focus instead on spending time with God in prayer and being deliberate about it and setting aside a time that you can find time with God. So Martin Luther, he started his day with two hours of prayer. And so did John and Charles Wesley. And these are, these are mighty men of prayer. When I hear that, I think about where am I going to find two hours of time to give to the Lord? You know, and I love reading the Puritans, but when I read the Puritans, it's a love-hate, because when I read what they write about worshiping, I often find myself with an idea that my faith is pretty paltry compared to what they're telling me that their faith is like. Thomas Watson is a good example of this. He says in about Luke 22, and this is the passage where Jesus is praying in the garden, and he's in agony. He's in agony when he prays, and Watson says, Christ was in agony in prayer, many when they pray are rather in a lethargy than in an agony. When they are about the world, they are all fire, but when they are at prayer, they are all ice. Wow, whenever I read the Puritans, I feel like there should be a mic drop someplace. If they had one, they might have just thrown it down, but I often feel like it's a punch in the gut when I read about a faith like that. And I'm thankful for this exhortation from them about what that looks like and what it should not look like. So if we look again at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So when we look at verse 5, we see Jesus' admonition to not pray like the hypocrites. And you might remember from last week that G.J. is telling us that the word hypocrites is actually great for the word for actors. 
And this is exactly what they are doing. When they are standing and praying in the synagogues and in the street corners, they are acting like they're pious. John Stott says, behind their piety lurk their pride. And in that same way, DJ preached last week about giving, and they did the same thing. They had trumpets herald them in before they would give. There's a lot of the same language here. Primarily, they did it in the synagogues and the streets. Now, you would think that it's because they're very worshipful, but in fact, it says they did this to draw attention to themselves, that they may be seen by others. Verse 2 says, Sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do. And we see that the hypocrites, they sound trumpets to draw attention to themselves so everybody knows they've come to the synagogue to give. They even stand on the street corners. And here, I don't think it's a mistake on why it says street corners. This is corners where two streets meet. So basically, you can get twice the attention. What better place to accidentally be caught praying than on the street corner? What are you doing? I'm just here praying in front of everybody. Both sides of the truth. And last week we heard to not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. And to not seek praise from people while we're doing it. And I appreciate Pastor DJ saying last week this is an area that he struggles in. And he wasn't wrong when he said it is an area all pastors struggle. And we can, we can move that out to the congregation as well. Our desire is for acceptance and belonging. We want a tribe of our own. We want people to love us. It's clear in the world today, and you can see from Scripture that it was clear then too. We do things for the appreciation of others. Jesus is setting that aside from who we should be doing it for. And the Jews, they like to do things that will win the admiration and, and the accolades from the people. And in and of themselves, they might not be bad things. We talked about giving last week. We're talking about prayer this week. And next week, we're talking about fasting. And those are all good things. Again, we talked about it is the motivation of your heart that makes it something less than good. So it's always a good question to ask ourselves when we're doing things, whose approval am I seeking? Is it God's approval? Is it man's approval? What are we doing it for? Who are we doing it for? So we should assume that Jesus is telling us to pray here, because he says when, when you pray, we can just assume that that's a command there, that Jesus knows we're going to be praying. And it's implied in Scripture that we're going to pray. And... Uh, it seems obvious that we should pray, but it's not. But when you think about it, what demonstrates more belief of our faith than praying? We're praying to an invisible God. What demonstrates to those around us more than that that we believe in Him, if not prayer? So, I can tell on myself here, I'm a fixer. And some of you might relate to that. <laughs> when I get told about a problem, instead of giving godly advice in many cases, I am sorting through how to fix that problem. And I often am thinking to myself, even in my own problems, 
How am I going to get myself out of this? And this is the last thing that we should be thinking. Our first action should be go to God with our problems because he wants to hear it and he wants to answer them. And Martin Luther says, prayer is a strong wall and a fortress of the church. It is a goodly Christian weapon. We think about that as prayer is a weapon. It's, it's something that, that is, is meant to, to change something. And, and yet we don't have a huge priority of it in, in my life, and I don't know about yours, but I suspect that when I talk to people about where prayer is amongst their disciplines, it's often not at the top. But we have these examples from Scripture, so like the psalmist in Psalm 55 tells us, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So if we look back at 5, we see that they stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. And we see in this verse 2 that it's the same motivation. They're giving out of a need to be seen by others. Then we see that they, their motivation is not to give glory to God. And as we've gone through the, the Sermon on the Mount, we can often swing in opposite directions, and we can take these commands as like literal and encompassing all things. And I don't think we can do this here, and I'll tell you why. So I don't think this, this is telling us to not stand and pray, right? Or to never pray in public. We wouldn't want to make the mistake of reading this and thinking that, that Jesus is advocating against standing and praying when Jesus is only advocating against standing and praying so that you can be seen by others. If we look at the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, we can see in, in chapter 11 that he specifically says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you and your sins. So there's an example of Jesus telling them that you're going to be standing and praying. So we know that the previous passage, verse 5 of chapter 6, does not mean don't stand and pray. And we know that Jesus in Matthew 26 falls on his face and prays. And you can find examples in Acts 21 of people kneeling. And in 2 Samuel, David is sits and prays. So it's not the position, it's the purpose and the motivation. We often forsake the best things in our godly life, and what Jesus is reminding us is that the best thing in this case, is to pray so that God sees you. And to set aside time. We'll get to that in a second. But Paul Miller says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We're so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, we prize production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams get to work. And I feel that all the time when I'm thinking, even, even in the midst of prayer, just like in Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, even in the midst of prayers, I can find my mind wandering to something else that I could be doing to solve the problem that I'm going to God with. So take a moment right now and think about how you can plug 10 more minutes into your prayer life. So now that I've said that, where are you going to get 10 minutes from? You're probably, your flesh is screaming, 
I am not setting the alarm any earlier. And what am I going to have to give up at the end of the day? What, what show am I going to have to not watch? Am I going to have to stay up later? I need my sleep. So, and it might even be, when you start to pray, 10 minutes seems like a long time. How are we going to get 10 minutes, squeeze 10 minutes talking to God? And when you think about it, 10 minutes is not that long. There's 19 people in our church, including the children, and if we spent one minute praying for each person, that would be twice that. So my favorite passage, often quoted, is Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And that quote is often, that, that verse is often quoted as this, this, this idea that God wants to prosper you. But if you keep reading, in verse 12 it says, Then you will call upon me. Come and pray to me, and I will hear you. We often cling to this first part, forsaking the second. It says right there, then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. When you pray, God hears you, and he will answer it. And prayer is a high place of honor in Scripture for a very good reason. It's helpful. For one thing, in Luke 22, Jesus tells the disciples that prayer is intertwined with watching. Jesus tells them to watch and pray. And what are they praying for? They're praying they would not fall into temptation. So prayer keeps us from temptation. And we know it's very powerful also because in Mark 9, 29, we see this pass about this boy that's been afflicted with a long time with this demon. And the inference from the text is that the disciples can't get it to leave, but Jesus comes along and he says, this kind can only come out in prayer. Well, what Jesus doesn't say is that only I can drive this demon out. He says, only prayer can do it. So in verse 5, he tells us that when we pray, standing on the street corner, and we pray so that we may be seen by others. We have received our reward. And when you seek the approval of men, the reward you get is an earthly reward. That be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. You'll get a reward, but it won't be from God. This is a reminder that the godly people receive a godly reward. The hypocrites receive the earthly reward because they pray so that they would be seen by men. So, is prayer the first thing that, we, that you do, or the last? And what does it really take before, it get, before you petition God on your own behalf or on behalf of others? And if we move on here, we look at verse 6. The word but here sets a contrast between the previous passage. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus tells the, the disciples, he's teaching the people to go into a secret room, which is, in, who's going to see them in a secret room? Nobody's going to see them in a secret room. 
but God. So this is a contrast between this previous passage where these people are praying in the public. And again, this isn't, Jesus doesn't want you to always go into a secret room and pray. He is talking about the contrast between how the righteous Jews are looking to receive accolades from the people versus how God will reward you if you spend time with him where no one else can see, him, see you praying with him. So the meaning would have been to, I'm sorry, the meaning of this would have been an inner room. So in a lot of, in a lot of houses, this, would, this could have been a storeroom, and it could have been the only room in the house to have a lock on it. And it was probably a room without windows. So if you look in Isaiah 26, you'll see the same word in the Septuagint, which reads, Enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while while the fury has passed by. This word, tamium, chamber, or inner room, is again, like a secret room or a dark room. It would have been, a, the, the purpose of that is an isolated room, a quiet room. Some commentaries say that it could be a bedroom, but again, the idea is privacy. Whichever it is, the idea is to find a place that's quiet and isolated when you pray to God. And again, that you will not be seen by men. So a humble heart doesn't care about being seen by others other than God, and that is the position that we want to go to God in prayer with, this idea of humility. Godly prayer is marked by it. Great reference in a lowly disposition. We heard that a couple times today about being low before God, and that's that's something that we should approach God with is this idea of reference because He's our Creator, and if we look back, He wants these good things for us. So let's not confuse reference with distance, though, because God wants us to come near, and we can do so without fear, friends, because God has exhausted his wrath on his son for your behalf. So you can be confident because you are an heir to God the kingdom. You've been adopted by God the Father. So Jesus tells them to go into this private room and again, there's a contrast here between verse 5 and verse 2 where the hypocrites stand on the street corners and the synagogues and pray they herald their arrival with trumpets. So in this case, he's telling them to go into your secret room and close the door and be alone with God. Some commentators see this passage as referencing the hidden nature of God and the invisible qualities, but I don't think we can take it too far. So he's talking here about being alone with God in that you're alone with God, you can't see God. God rewards obedience and faithfulness in for those who are sincere. And we should remember both these examples, there is a reward to be had. It's just who the reward giver is. The hypocrites receive their reward from men, while the godly receive their reward from God. And then the word, the word reward here, there's a couple different manuscripts that have this translated as be modified with the word openly, as in God rewards you openly. And the contrast here is that while God sees you praying privately, 
he rewards you openly. This appears to be added by copyists, so it's not in all manuscripts, but it's not contradictory, and it seems true. If you pray to God earnestly in private, God rewards you openly with more of himself. Now, the hypocrites are also rewarded openly, but not by God, by man. So there's this great story about F.B. Meyer, who's a pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he tells this story. And he was also a friend and acquaintance of D.L. Moody, so I'll give you the time frame. He's talking about how he's on this ocean liner. And because he's so well known, they're asking him to go to these sections. And if you've ever seen Titanic, you remember that all the different passengers were, I know I quoted Titanic, mentioned <laughs> Titanic, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> so the way this worked was there was, you know, it's like a plane, there was first class and the second class, all the way down to fourth class. So, so Meyer is going around and people have asked him to go throughout these different classes and pray for people. So he starts out in first class and there is a, there's a critic there, an agnostic, who, who after he's done praying, and they specifically tell him to pray for answered prayer. So while he's going around praying, there's this agnostic who, who when asked, like, what did you think of that? He said, well, <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. So throughout the course of the day, Myers is going around throughout this cruise ship praying for these different classes of people. And he gets to the fourth class, and he goes through praying. And in the midst of that, he sees... This group of people on the fourth class, and there's a woman sleeping, sleeping on a deck chair. And this agnostic guy, actually, who has two oranges in his pocket, walks up to her while she's sleeping and places an orange in each hand while she's sleeping. They leave, and then the agnostic walks by her, and as he's leaving, she wakes up. And she wakes up and she grabs these two oranges and she starts giving praise to God. And the agnostic asks her, Why are you giving praise to God? And she said, it's funny that you would ask that, but while I was sleeping, I fell asleep praying because of my seasickness, and right before I went to sleep, I was praying for an orange. And God answered my prayers with double what I asked for from the hands of an agnostic. And it, it goes on to say that this gentleman came to Christ later thinking about this situation where God had used him, an unbeliever, or at least a not committed person, to answer the prayers of the faithful. And God often uses other people to answer our prayers. So again, we don't want to look at this as, plain, as an admonition to pray publicly. And we can see in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the people, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done by them by the Father in heaven. And for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. This is an example of people gathering, and what they're doing is they're praying. So we can see that there is not an admonition about people gathering together to pray. So you don't always have to go to a private room. Again, we talk about that's not an example of, uh, of a command that you have to follow in every situation. But Jesus is teaching his disciples and the instruction is different for the people with the kingdom ethic. They are to be salt and light. He is calling the people to himself and he is reminding them that this is what it looks like to be one of my children. 
We see in passages like Acts 24 where it goes, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, through servants, said by the Holy Spirit. This is an example of praying out loud without a thought of being seen by man. They're praying out loud, but they're praying in worship. So if we move on to verse 7 of this passage, and it says, And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard with many words. Do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And the word here for empty phrases is a complicated Greek one. But I'll, uh, I'm going to try it. But essentially, it's an, auto, it's, a, it's, a, it's an onomatopoeia. Okay, so if you go back to English class, for us, some of us, it's further than others, but if you go way back to English class, you'll remember that that's a word that really just means kind of what it sounds like. So an example of that would be pow or bam, all those cartoon words for onomatopoeias. So that's one of the explanations for this word. And uh, the, there's other commentaries that have other explanations, and one of them is that this word, they attribute the word to a mystical word to induce magic. So that would be something that they're saying to prompt a response from the gods, like abracadabra, for example. And essentially the word means to battle. And different translations modify it with words like on and on, or repetitiously, or keep on babbling, or even vain repetition, depending on which translation you look at. And what Jesus has in mind here is the Gentiles' manner of praying long, repetitious prayers, <coughs> invoking different names of the gods. And they do this in the hopes that one of them will answer their prayers. And in this case, the reason the Gentiles keep up empty phrases is because the passage says they think they will be heard for their many words. And Jesus is saying, it's about the quality and not the quantity. So the admonition is not about spending time with God. It's about spending time with God and using empty phrases to try and get God to move on your behalf. And it's about praying from the heart, and this is why we don't need things to augment our prayers like, like you might see in other faiths. Prayer wheels, prayer beads, those kinds of things. Jesus says that's not necessary. So there's an example of this in the Old Testament of praying with these repetitive uh, phrases. And it comes from 1 Kings 18.26, and you're familiar with the story, I hope, because it's such a good one. Elijah encountering the prophets of Baal. The passage says, they called to Baal from morning to noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But no one answered. There was no voice. And you might remember that here, Elijah even mocks them. Like, well, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's relieving himself or on a journey or something. Maybe if you pray louder, you'll wake him up. And we know that it doesn't, but Elijah calls out to God, and God answers. You might remember that he, he allows him to light a fire to wood that they've wetted for quite a while, so he can offer a burnt offering to the Lord. 
And then the Lord brings the rain. He answers the prayer not just to prove that he is God, but also to bring rain in the midst of the drought. You might also remember it doesn't end well for the prophets of Baal. So Elijah gathers them up and puts them to death for deceiving the people. You might remember that earlier in the passage it says there was 450 prophets. That's how many people were leading God's people away. So if we move on into verse 8, Jesus tells them why all their prayers fall short. He says, do not be like them. Further, your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Do not be like them. He's telling them to not pray like them. In that when they pray, they seek attention for themselves. And he's also telling them that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And Psalm 37 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if you are delighting in the Lord, and that comes out in prayer, what do you think would be your heart's desire? Praying for more of God is always the prayer that God will answer in his own timing. In Matthew 26, Jesus prays in the garden, and he prays that he would fulfill the will of the Father. And he tells his disciples again, watch and pray. And you might remember that he finds them sleeping twice and admonishes them for not being able to pray even for a couple minutes. And if you think about it, we have this benefit of hindsight where we can see the text in the Bible, this whole narrative, culminating, moving towards this monumental, the single greatest moment in history, the cross. And these guys are sleeping. You can't miss the army. I know I wouldn't have gotten it either, but he's going to be offered as a sacrifice for them. And he's asking them to watch and pray. And he does this so he can go off and pray to God, so he can fulfill God's will. And they can't do it for even a couple minutes. I think there's a sermon there, too, stand guard or be firm, something like that. But today it's about watch and pray. If God knows what we need before we even pray, then why do we? Because it demonstrates belief, for one thing. Because Christ tells us and commands us to do it, for another. Because there are sure prayers that God will answer for increase in faith and perseverance. Or to be free from temptation. For more forgiveness when I fall into sin. These are good things to pray for. We have this passage in Galatians 5 about the fruits of the Spirit. It comes with an increase in godliness. All that comes by praying for more faithfulness. James 5 says, If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Then he goes on in verse 18 to say, Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And James is talking about Elijah. And he's saying, prayer brings not only healing, but it brings sanctification, it brings forgiveness, and it brings physical relief. It brings rain in the midst of a drought. The earth bore its fruit. And in John 17, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer. And it says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's you. That you pray for other people. That you who's received the gift of faith because someone prayed for you. If you've heard the gospel and responded to faith, it's because Jesus prayed for you in John. This is answered prayer to not only Jesus, but for someone close to you to pray for you. And in my case, some of those people are right here in this room. God answered the prayers of my wife, my sister, my parents, my mother-in-law, my fan club. <laughs> <laughs> and many other people. Friends, commit to improving your prayer life and see what that does for your life. Don't let the evidence of your faith be solely based on your knowledge of him through his word, which is good, but let the evidence of your faith be powerful praying, too. Not praying is like getting to know your children by reading their autobiographies. It's like knowing your family by studying a picture. What kind of marriage would you have, what kind of friendship would you have if you never spoke to your wife or friends? God is the same way. He commands it because it glorifies him and it's good for us in answer to it. Again, 19 people in this church, including the children. One minute praying for each member who would be praying 19 minutes a day. If you added a minute for Apple Patch, you'd be praying for a nice round 20. And you can see how quickly you can get to two hours. Just that fast, we're in for 20. Ian Bounds, another one of my favorites, says, God's appointment does not make hurriedly. He does not bestow his gifts on the casual or hasty comer and goer. To be much alone with God is the secret of knowing him and of his influence with him. You should know that God delights in your prayers. And my two favorite passages on prayer come from the book of Revelation. And Revelation 5a says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures of the 24 hours fell down before the Lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Just imagine that in the throne room, there's golden bowls of incense with the prayers of God's people. We move on to Revelation 8. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayer of all God's people on the golden altar. 
in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Now, think about that for a minute. In the throne room of God, your prayers are burning like incense. God is breathing them in. Is that not a good reason alone to pray to God? Fight against the idea that you're not doing anything by praying. In the idea that God is not listening. By praying, in many cases, you're doing the best thing. And in some cases, you are doing the only thing you can do. First John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have asked of him, and we know that it is heard. Mark 11, 24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And Philippians 4 says, and it's a tough one, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can go like, oh, I'm always anxious, so... Automatic failure, I probably shouldn't pray about it. <laughs> no! Pray harder, pray more. We're not just encouraged to pray, we're commanded to pray. And again, one more time with the unbounds. Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. If you have heard the gospel and responded in faith, if you have done that, then your prayers are not meaningless because you pray to a God who is able and who is mighty to save you and to keep you and to glorify you. In fact, your evidence is someone's answered prayers. I am evidence of someone's answered prayers. God moved on behalf of someone else to save me. In your life, you can probably think about who probably prayed for you before it came to faith. Bam! Now we're up to 21 minutes. Friends, if you have not responded in faith, I urge you to. Time is short, and no one knows when Christ will return. And I urge you to consider who this God is and why he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and to repent and put your trust in him. He is a father who restores the broken affects you through the blood of his only son. And I urge you, don't let another day go by without taking in the good news, repenting, and putting your faith in him. Matthew Henry said, when God is about to give his people the expected good, he pours out a spirit of prayer, and it is a good sign that he is coming toward them in mercy. That is also a good thing to pray for, a spirit of prayer, Something like we see in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. I need to remind you of my parents in here that their churches kept these prayer cards for decades of prayer requests. And they blogged them and they've answered, they put the answer to prayer down in this book. They can look back over 10 years to see these prayers and how they were answered by God. May we be pray in church. May God press upon us a spirit of prayer that we would pray more. 
that we would pray to stand firm and we would pray for others. Let that be our witness to the world. That is salt and light. Let's pray.